we thought of whose voice we wanted to narrate these video clips, we thought of Jack Templeton, that gravelly, deep, old society voice. Isn't it just reverberating in your, in your soul right now? Some of his uh, kids are here tonight and uh, today, so it's exciting to hear Jack participating. I want to tell you about Helen Keller, and I'm sure you probably are familiar with her. She was 19 months old when she had an illness that left her blind and deaf for life. So I want you to think of that. 19 months old, completely deaf, completely blind. And it wasn't until she was 10 years old that she had any meaningful communication with other people. It was when her teacher, Ann Sullivan, made a breakthrough with her with water. And her parents then, now that Ann Sullivan was beginning to teach Helen Keller how to communicate, her parents then arranged almost immediately for Pastor Phillips, Philip Brooks, he was a Puritan pastor, to come and give her religious instruction. And he did, and he spent years with Helen Keller, teaching her about God. And there was one day that she communicated to Brooks these words. Quote, I knew about God before you told me, only I didn't know his name. Now, I know that's underwhelming. I know that's not really that climactic to hear that story. But I really want you to try to let that reverberate a little bit. Let that sink into your mind a little bit. I knew about God before you told me, only I didn't know his name. Well, we know the name of God. He's revealed himself. Hebrews 1 tells us who that is. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. Who brought the universe into existence? It was the word of God, Jesus Christ. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. This is the power of Jesus Christ. He sustains all things that he himself brought into existence. Well, today we begin the I Am series. And we're about to learn the name that Jesus gives us, or at least in the text that we're going to be looking at, and actually for the next seven weeks. And we're going to look at eight I am statements that are recorded in the Gospel of, of John that Jesus spoke. Seven of the eight, not today's, but seven of the eight include a metaphor. For example, I am the light, that's a metaphor, or I am the door, that's a metaphor. But I wonder as we begin, and all I'm doing right now is kind of introducing this. By the way, what I, this is what it's like a little bit at least when you begin a new series, a new sermon series. It's very, very exciting for the one who's preaching it. And it's almost like taking a big trip. But before you go on the trip, there are all the details that you've got to take care of. You've got to make sure everybody is packed. You've got to make sure you go out all the directions, all the arrangements being made. It's very difficult at the beginning of a series. So I'm really excited about launching this series today, except today is really the packing. Today is the logistical sermon that's going to get us really underway starting next week. But I want to teach you a principle, and I wonder if you've ever seen this in Psalm 115. 
You can turn there if you want. In fact, I would encourage you to because this won't be on the screen. It's Psalm 115, verse 8, right in the very middle of your Bible. Psalm 115, verse 8. It's an incredible principle, and you probably have seen it. If not, maybe this is new for you. Maybe this is encouraging. Here's what it says in verse 8. Those who make idols become like them, so do all who trust in them. And you might be wondering, well, wait a minute. I thought you said this was encouraging. Well, it is when you understand the principle. What you bow down to, you're going to worship, and you're going to trust. Now, here's the principle. And what you bow down and worship and trust is what you're going to resemble more and more. You're going to become like the idol that you worship. So if I worship power, if Tim Ackley worships power, then I'm going to become scheming and manipulative because I need that. I have to have that in my life. If I worship money, then I'm going to become increasingly greedy. I'm going to become more in love with the things of this world. If I worship fame, then I'm going to become all the more narcissistic, all the more self-obsessed. What you worship, you're going to begin to resemble. Here it is again. Those who make idols become like them. That's the process of worship. This is the transformational power of worship. So do all who trust in them. Now, take that principle, which is in the negative in Psalm 115.8. You ready? Now look at me for a moment. I want you to flip it. Because there's a positive application to this. The same is true in a good way. The more we worship Jesus Christ, the more we trust in him, the more we will become like him. We will resemble him. The trajectory of our lives will shift away from me on the throne. It's all about my fulfillment. And it will shift to him in adoration and exaltation. And my life will become more like his. See, that's the wonderful principle of Psalm 115, verse 8. And this sermon series is all about helping that transformation occur. We're going to be looking at Jesus for eight weeks. We're going to be looking at nobody but Jesus. And we're going to see how great he is, how he has revealed himself to us. And the hope, the goal, the desire in my heart, I hope in your heart as well, is that we will begin to worship him even more, trusting him with more of our lives, putting more of our confidence in him. And as we do, listen, you won't even be aware of it. You will become more and more like Jesus. If you have experienced biblical transformation in your life, you'll understand what I'm about to tell you. It is sometimes years later when all of a sudden you realize, you know what, I don't struggle with that sin anymore that I used to. It doesn't have that hold over me. When did that happen? And you're not even going to be able to pinpoint, in most cases, when that discernible shift was. It was just a process. This is what it means to become more like Jesus, to grow in Christ. That's the aim, and that's the goal of this series. We're going to see how completely Jesus answers our every need, for he is a faithful, promise-keeping, ever-with-us God. So here we go. John chapter 5, verse 58. We all need to be in this, or verse 48. We all need to be in this. I think if you're using a pew Bible, I think it's page 958, or it's somewhere close to there. So if you could get your Bibles open... Let's all be looking at it. This is a, an incredible chapter. We're only going to skim most of it until we really focus in on the verse, verse 48. 
And what we're about to see is a massive conflict. Actually, we're going to be focusing in on verse 58. I'm really getting it wrong. This is what you do when you first launch a series. Everything is discombobulated. It'll get focused in, I hope. But what you're going to see if you start at verse 48 is a massive conflict brewing between a group of Jewish men and Jesus. Now, let me give you a warning before I really get going in this. Right? I need you to look at me for this because you've got to trust me on this one. This is going to be a stretch. Some of you are going to be really worried when I tell you this. You're going to be like, all of a sudden, your heart rate's going to increase. You're going to be sweating. You're going to get nervous. This is an incredibly meaty sermon. Uh, I know. Some of you are like, that's it. How do I get out of here without Tim seeing me? How do I leave? Why did I come? I should have used a parking excuse. Okay, it's an incredibly meaty sermon, but listen... It's not complicated. And I think you're going to learn a lot. And I think when you learn what I'm going to teach you, it's going to be the kind of learning that you'll walk out of here going, you know what, I never knew that. That is really awesome. Not because I'm, I'm some gifted teacher. That's not what it is. We're just going to look at the Word of God and let the Word of God teach us. So when we get to verse 48, there's a conflict brewing. It's between a group of Jewish men and Jesus. And what's going on in the time of of this chapter, chapter 8, is an eight-day festival called the Tabernacles. It had just finished, in fact. And it's sometimes, that means we know the date or that we know the time of the year. It's late September. It could be any time between mid-September and mid-October. So if you want to know when it is, and by the way, if you ever want to know the climate of Jerusalem, if you've ever been to San Diego, it's almost identical. So it's late September, there's a chill in the night air, it's between late September, mid-October, uh, and the scribes and the Pharisees, by the way, these are Jewish lawyers, scribes, and Pharisees, Jewish pastors, they're looking for a way to trap Jesus, and they're trying to find a way to put him to death. Well, that's kind of harsh. See, there's a rumor buzzing. They hated this. There was a rumor buzzing around that maybe Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, he had hardly done anything of supernatural, miraculous sign gifts at this point. He's only done one, really, in public, and yet they already are buzzing. Maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the one sent from God to deliver us, and it infuriated the leaders. In fact, he makes an audacious claim. Look at verse 31, chapter 8. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and this is Messiah language, and the truth will set you free. But free from what? Well, he explains, if you keep following the text, he explained that the freedom he's offering was not freedom from Rome, it was freedom from the power and the penalty of sin. Now listen, what is sin? Sin is something that we are born as an expert in. And it doesn't take us long to even get better at it. We're already born with the capacity to sin. We're already born with the nature to sin. We're, we have that nature to sin even in our mother's wombs. David is saying this in Psalm 51. But it doesn't take us long. Nobody has to teach us. There's not a manual that you have to read to really get proficient in sinning. So you've got the nature to sin, and then you get pretty good at it really, really quick. So sin is rebellion. If you want to know what sin is, it's, it's not so much the actions of doing something that 
God says not to do. It's an inward heart that says, I want to rebel against God. I want to defy God. And it produces actions that are contrary to what God wants. So sin is a lot deeper than actions. It's a problem with the heart. So he's saying, Jesus is, I want to free you from sin. The power and the penalty of it. But the escalation of the conflict keeps going on. Jesus claims, look, I mean, if you just keep skimming chapter 8, he claims that he is without sin. Oh, this makes him so mad, the Pharisees and the scribes. And then he claims, I mean, this is incredible, he claims that he had been with the Heavenly Father. He had come from the Heavenly Father. And the words that he is speaking to them are words that God had given them. So what Jesus is doing is he's claiming an authority far greater than that which the scribes and the Pharisees had. And by the way, that's really the fundamental issue. That's really the fundamental problem that the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and priests had with Jesus, it was a loss of control. They were losing control of the people. And Jesus says, my authority far transcends yours. My words are from the Father. So what do they do? Well, look at your text. They lobby ethnic slurs at him. Look at verse uh, 48. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? You're not going to say much worse than that to a Jewish person. Samaritans were half Jews, half breeds. They hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated the Jewish people. So they lobby an ethnic slur at him. And then they accuse him of being demon-possessed, same verse, and the tension reaches a climax when Jesus claims to be greater than even Abraham. Now listen, the Jewish people looked at Abraham as being the father of the Jews, par excellence, nobody greater than Abraham. And so he's claiming to be greater than Abraham, and in doing so, he reveals his name that results in the Jews trying to stone him to death. That's verse 58. Look what they do in verse 59. They pick up stones. They're wanting to kill him. All right, so here we go. You ready? Now, that was all kind of preliminary. I'm going to start digging deep now. And this is actually kind of fun. I think you're going to learn some stuff, and I think it'll be enjoyable. Modern parenting doesn't choose names for their babies very often like they did in biblical days. See, in the Bible, a person's name captured an attribute or the nature of the baby that was becoming a parent. So in Israel, that, by the way, they waited till the eighth day. It was the father's roll to name the baby and they waited until the eighth day one of the reasons and there were several one of the reasons for that is it gave them time to see this baby get got they, they had time to uh, to really notice and observe the baby to be able to see temperament to be able to see physical characteristics and the name that they would give their babies usually has something to do with an attribute or a character quality or even a physical appearance issue of the baby names captured the essence of the person 
in biblical times. We don't do that too much anymore. We're kind of after names that are really awesome, maybe names from somebody in our family that meant a lot to us, or a celebrity, or names that are really cool and in vogue in our modern day, but not in the scriptures. They named their babies for a purpose. Now, let me give you an example of that. 1 Samuel 25, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Do you see the connection between the name and the personality or the way that the person lived? Nabal is his name and folly is with him. And that's what the word means, Nabal. And so to this day, in Orthodox Judaism, a dying person can have their name changed. Sometimes they do this, even today in modern times, changed in the hopes that a new name will bring Health and a new life. That happens even today in Orthodox Judaism. Yet he saved them, yet God saved them for his name's sake. Well, even before that, let me read this one. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Here, a good name means your reputation. A good name is your reputation. It's to be chosen. It's more worthy, more valuable than great riches. They would rather have a good reputation than a lot of money. See, God cares very much about protecting his name. It represents his identity, his reputation. Now listen, you've got to get this. If you're missing this, you're missing the main critical building block of this sermon series. God cares very much about protecting his name. It represents who he is. All of his names do. And here's the verse I read a moment ago. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. So he does things for his reputation, his name's sake. Now what I'm doing is I'm trying to press into you the importance of us knowing the names of God that represent, capture, reflect an attribute of God or a character quality of God. Now listen, and it's important for us to make sure that we do not break one of the commandments. We do not bring his name down. We don't take his name in vain. Now I want to say something that is such a pet peeve of mine as a pastor. We recently went on a bike trip from Pittsburgh to D.C., a bunch of us, uh, seven of us, five of, five of which um, don't normally go to church. It's a great opportunity for me as a pastor to be able to be with people that are unchurched and just to really hopefully show them the love of Christ. And they know I'm a pastor, and so every once in a while there would be an expletive dropped and they would apologize. I finally told them the second night, I said, listen, guys, I'm going to tell you right now. I don't, I mean, I don't, I, I really don't swear. I have a lot of problems with sin, but swearing for, thank God, is not one of them. So you, it doesn't bother me, guys, if you drop an expletive, unless it's the name of Jesus or God. I can't, I don't like that. That is something in me cringes. And they all respected that wonderfully. It is, there, there's almost nothing that bothers me more than when Christians say, oh my God, or write OMG on their Facebook. I can't stand that. That is such a breach of keeping God's name venerated. It's thoughtless expression of God's name. 
We shouldn't ever do that. Christian, there's no Christian that ever should ever take God's name and empty it, which is what vain means, and empty it of significance and say it thoughtlessly. Get that out of your life. You should never say that. You should never take Jesus Christ, his name is an expletive. But if you do, there's grace for you. But that's something that God's grace needs to worm out of your life, out of your vocabulary. But listen, that's not even the worst way that we take God's name in vain. And it's not the only way that the commandment means or applies itself. We Christians bear the name of Christ. We are little Christ Christians. And so we live in the world. We live among the people of the world carrying Christ with us. And when our conduct, of which I'm guilty by the way, when our conduct is such that it tarnishes the reputation of the one whose name we bear, we are reducing his name. You can live in a way that empties God of his glorious name. Or you can live in a way that exalts his name. So when you show integrity at work, or when you love people who do not love you and mistreat you, you are exalting the name of Christ. But when you return tit for tat, when people hurt you and you hurt back, you are demeaning and bringing down and emptying the glory of the name of Christ. The way we live as a Christian either lifts up or brings down the name of God. And he cares deeply when we do that. So this startling incident that I'm about to tell you about, this is in the, the annals of Jewish history in Leviticus, inspired a millennium of Jews to, to this day even to severely guard the name of God that translates in the English, Lord. So let me read to you about this incident. It's an Old Testament story, Leviticus chapter 24. Two men got in a fight. Man, the Bible doesn't tarnish. It doesn't really, it won't hide all of the details. It tells you everything. I love it. I love that about the Bible. It's not trying to be an antiseptic history of Israel. It tells you all the gory stuff, all the bad stuff as well as the good. There's an Old Testament story. Two men get in a fight. They're in the camp of Israel. One of the guys was an Israelite. Now listen, this is a fist fight. They're going at it. One's an Israelite. The other had an Israelite mother, but an Egyptian father. In the course of this fight, there's people all around. Not much changes, right? You always got to have your ring of spectators. The one who had the mixed blood, Israelite mother, Egyptian father, the one who had the mixed blood, the Bible says in Leviticus 24, quote, blasphemed the name and cursed. Now listen, they didn't have the F-bomb back then, so get that out of your mind. What he did was he took the name of God and he used it in an expletive. He was taken and put in custody. Then the Lord himself, God himself, instructed that the man be brought out the hands of those who heard him, who were witnesses, those who heard him curse God, were to be placed upon the man's head, and then he was put to death. That is startling. That's a historical account in Israel. God cares about his name. He values his name. It's his reputation. His names capture who he is. And so when we see the word Lord in your Old Testament, are you ready? This is one of the things you got to learn. You got to know this. When you see all small caps, Lord, what you're seeing 
is the name for God originally called Yahweh. Now you ready? Get this down. I would write this in your margin. When you see all caps L-O-R-D, that is Yahweh. It's been translated into the Greek. That's the New Testament. It's been translated into the Greek as Lord, but without the, without the capital letters. Capital L, small, or under, cap, whatever that is, undercase, O-R-D. Okay? Yahweh reveals God's nature in the highest and fullest sense possible. Listen, Yahweh is the name above all names for God in the Old Testament. Now, you getting this? This is all going to factor into John 8, 58. This is critical that you understand this. And it's going to all factor into the rest of this sermon series. Yahweh is the name above all other names of God in the Old Testament. The name stresses the absolute, unending faithfulness of God. And by the way, Yahweh was a name that God gave only to his people. He did not give this to the people of the nations of the world. This is just for those whom he has delivered. The unchangeableness of God is in view or immutability of God. He doesn't change. That's all swept up into the name Yahweh, especially as he wonderfully demonstrates his word to the fullest degree possible by working out redemption for his people. Now listen, I'm going to sum all this up. This is so, so important. Yahweh, here we go. It's in short, Yahweh is the name above all names for God in the Old Testament. It's about his eternal, his eternal unchangeable, faithful nature that he will keep his word and redeem his people. That is Yahweh. Yahweh is the great I am and always shall be. That's what the name, if you reduce it to a few words, that's what it means. It means I am and always shall be. The unchanging God who demonstrates his love and mercy to his people at every moment. It's the God of the present tense. It's not the God who used to be, it's not the God who will be, it's the God who always is and will always be. It's the God of the present tense, meaning he is eternally, unchangeably faithful to his people, keeping his word. That's what it means. When you think of Yahweh, all Lord, or all capital letters, small caps, L-O-R-D, when you see that in your Old Testament, you're seeing the eternal, unchangeable, faithful God who keeps his word and will redeem you. He will deliver you. Let me give you a little bit more. That's how important this is, why I'm giving you so much on this. The name Yahweh means he's eternally self-existent. By the way, nobody created God, and God was never created. Now that just staggers the mind. There's nothing in our minds that can truly understand that. You just... That's one you've got to take by faith because there's nothing in this world that is tactile that you can touch or observe that has always been existing. Nothing. God alone is eternal. He's eternally alive in the past. He's alive now. He will be eternally alive in the future. All we can do is have a line with an arrow going this way. It is a point this way because there was never an eternity in the past. Not for us. 
His name means that he's eternally self-existent. He owes his life to no one. His name means he is ever above us. He's transcendent. He's greater than we will ever be, greater than anyone. His name means he is personally aware and concerned for you and I in every circumstance. There's nothing that you and I go through that God is not right there with us and concerned for. That's Yahweh. That's what it means. He is ever present in everything for his people. His name means he is utterly unable to change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. His name means he is righteous. He's absolutely unable to do wrong to anyone. Everything he does is impeccably holy and right. All right, so that's how important Yahweh is, the name above all names. I told you the story about the two men in Israel that got in a fight, and one blasphemed God, and he was put to death. That story spawned for millennium of Jews to this day a reverence for the name of Yahweh that is not dimmed in authentic, authentic Judaism. So to protect the name for God, Yahweh, devout Jews, they would never pronounce it. Never. It became a capital offense to utter the name Yahweh. Here's what they did. Let me tell you what they did. The only exception, the only time that anyone could verbally utter the name Yahweh was the Day of Atonement, one day a year, when the high priest could say the name as he entered into the Holy of Holies. That was one of the, one of the greatest privileges he had on that day. He could say Yahweh, but it was a capital offense for anybody to verbally mention that name. They were protecting the name. When the Jewish scribes would copy the scriptures, the Old Testament, they would stop when they came to this name. This name is thousands of times in the Old Testament. They would stop every time. They would bathe. They would take off their clothes, obviously, before they bathed. And then they would put on clean clothes after they did. And they would take a new and unused pen and then write out the name. When reading the Old Testament, the Jews then began to substitute... They began to find a way around this, by the way. They began to substitute either Elohim or Adonai instead of Yahweh, which is the English word Lord. But here's what they did. Sixth century A.D. This is kind of fun, isn't it? Sixth century A.D., the name Yahweh, it has no vowels in the Hebrew language, no vowels. It's just Y-H-W-H. That's what Yahweh is. It was given vowels from the name of God, Adonai, forming the safe-to-speak and write name of Jehovah. So now they use the name Jehovah because they can utter that. They can speak that. They can write that. Now, that's just background. Let me tell you what's even more amazing about the name Yahweh. And it begins to bring us back to our passage of John 8. It is, as I have said, the greatest name for God in the Old Testament. But I want you to listen to the Apostle Paul's statement in Philippians 2. Look in the screen behind me, and I want you to see this as I read it. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Hmm. Some people read this and say, well, that's obviously the name Jesus. No, it's not. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every 
tongue, confess, here it is, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's Greek kurios, which is the way they translated Yahweh from the Old Testament. What's the name above every name? Yahweh. To the glory of God the Father. Now it's clear where Paul gets this from Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. Here we go, look at the underlines. To me every knee shall bow, same as Philippians, every tongue shall confess or swear allegiance. Only in the Lord. Well, that's Hebrew. This is Old Testament. That's Yahweh. All small caps. It shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength to him shall come and be ashamed. All who were incensed against him. You see, what Paul is doing is he's borrowing from Isaiah and he's giving to Jesus the name above all names. Jesus is Yahweh. And now we get to our verse in John 5 58 truly truly I say to you before Abraham was I am remember Yahweh means I am that I am and always shall be the voice speaking and Matthew read it before the worship service began or as it began the voice speaking from the burning bush to Moses was the voice of Jesus You want to see the power of the authority of the name I am. I'm going to show it to you in action form. It's now the night before Jesus was crucified. He had just prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas was leading the mob of soldiers to, to arrest him. And we pick it up in John 18. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Jesus, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. These were soldiers. Now, here's what I want you to know, and you should write this in your Bibles. The word he, the pronoun he, does not exist in the Greek manuscripts. All he said was, I am. That's the power of this name. Here is in John 8, 58, Jesus self-identifies as the I am, the Yahweh. And the power of that name above names dropped the soldiers to the ground on their faces. But I want to end by dialing in and focusing a little bit more specifically on John 8, 58. So let's dive in. You ready? Not going to be too much longer. Again, here's what it says. Jesus said to them, verse 58, truly, truly. <coughs> That's amen, amen. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now look at me for a moment, because this has got to be, I'm sure, in some of your minds. Why, why did he say why did he say be before Abraham was, I am? Now listen, look at me. Why didn't he say before Adam was, I am? Why didn't he go all the way back to the first man 
ever created. Why did he start at Abraham? Why didn't he go before Adam was I am? I mean, certainly that would have been true because Eve said after giving birth in Genesis 4.1, now Adam knew his wife, knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. All small caps. That's Yahweh. So Yahweh was known all the way back to Adam and Eve. But all the way through John 8, the name Abraham had come into the conversation 12 times in chapter 8. If you notice in verse 33, look at your, your Bibles, chapter 8, verse 33, the Jews said, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They couldn't have been talking about national freedom. Look at me for a moment. The Jews were enslaved by Assyria, Babylon, Three other countries and now Rome. Before that, they had gone through periods of time when Syria conquered them. Philistines conquered them. To where nobody even had a weapon in Israel. They had stripped the fight out of them. So they've been enslaved all throughout their history. So there's no way that they could have been talking about national freedom. They meant spiritual freedom. And the great deception of the Jewish people was that they believed that Abraham's righteousness guaranteed their own. Now let me explain this. This is so important you understand. They believed because Abraham was so righteous and they were children of Abraham that his righteousness was their righteousness. That they were right before God. They were innocent before God because they had Abraham as their father and they loved the law. This was the trap. This was their deception. They believed they were accepted and favored by God through the righteousness of Abraham. And now, now we're firmly in the domain of the gospel. There's only one way that a person can be right with God. There's only one person in whom we can place our hope and our confidence. It cannot be Abraham. Because Abraham was a sinner just like the rest of us. No one, no one is declared right with God through Abraham. The only way, now listen, this is so important. The only way that any person ever, ever in the history of humanity was ever declared right with God was through Jesus and the blood that he shed. Well, how, did, how then did people in the Old Testament become right with God? They put their faith in God. They put their faith in Job said, if only there was some mediator, if there was only somebody that could come down and bridge my hand with the hand of God. And what he's speaking of, somebody that he knew was going to be coming, he didn't know the name Jesus, but he knew the Son of God. He knew that someone from God would come and save them. Why was Abel's sacrifice accepted and Cain's not? Because Abel's was a blood offering. And blood offering is for the remission of sin. There was the knowledge that that sin desecrates our relationship with God. And there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. That's why his sacrifice was accepted while Cain's was not. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The point of John 8, 58 
is to open the eyes of his listeners. He's saying, I existed before Abraham. I am Yahweh, the one who keeps the promise to faithfully redeem my people and set them free. He's saying, listen, you've got to put your confidence in me, not in Abraham, or you are still a slave to sin. All right, well, let's bring this into the context of our own day. Because not anybody here, I am sure, believes that because Abraham was counted righteous, Romans 4, therefore you are counted righteous. Switchfoot has a brand new song that I think has one of the worst, and I love that band, they got one of the worst lyrics in it, we are all Abraham's sons. No, that's not actually true. But you're not counted righteous because of Abraham. So how do you bring this into today's context? Well, let me ask each of you to answer a question. You ready? Here it is. Now, think through this. Let's deliberate on this mentally. Who or what are you trusting to save you yourself from the guilt of your sins? Now, listen, I have never in all my life ever, ever met anybody, and I've talked about this a lot with a lot of people out of the church in the church saved unsaved but i've never had anybody tell me they're not a sinner never there's just something everybody knows there's guilt that we feel whether you're a christian or not or in the church or not you just feel it everybody knows they've done things they should not do so so let's just settle that we all know we're sinners so the question is who or what are you trusting to save yourself from the guilt of your sins. Now listen, here's some options that people go for. Your religious background or your religious training. Listen, I have a really good friend who this last week told me that as soon as their daughter completed confirmation in the church, they've hardly ever been back since. Because they could breathe easy now, they think, because she went through the, the class, she went through the confirmation, and she made a profession of faith, which is the graduation ceremony of confirmation, and now it's not that big of a deal anymore. They don't have to go to church anymore. This is an epidemic among Lutheran churches that have confirmation classes. As soon as they get their kids through them, mysteriously, the families disappear. They, they're putting their hope of eternal life in Religious instruction. It's not a good idea. Have you put your confidence in your own morality? You try and you do the best that you can. But my question is, how do you know? How do you know if you've done enough? The answer usually is, wait, I don't. That's what people tell me. I don't really know. I just hope at the end of my life, God is going to see my effort and say it was enough and, and step aside and usher me through the pearly gates. That's what they're putting their hope in. Century after century, from the earliest times in human history, men and women have tried to make their own way to God, one that they're in control of. Yet Jesus says, look at verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will not see death. He will never see death. That just means, that's an idiom for meaning that you put your confidence in what I'm telling you. You trust me because my word is who I am. You put your faith in me, you're never going to see death. Predictably, the Jews asked Jesus, just who does he think he is? Greater than Abraham or the prophets. 
And his answer was, yes, I am greater. Verse 8, I am Yahweh. I am eternal, covenant-keeping, name above all names, God. I'm the one that Abraham saw from afar off, knowing one day he's going to be with me. That's Hebrews chapter 11. I'm the one that Abraham knew was coming. So they picked up stones to throw at him and kill him. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the eternal Son of God. He didn't become the Son of God when he was birthed by Mary. He's the eternal Son of God, always been the Son in the triune Godhead. He has always existed. He always will exist. And as Yahweh, he has revealed himself to people of every age. And John's gospel will show how he uses common metaphors of the day to show people who he was, who he and what he does. Who he was and what he does. Now let me, and I'm going to be just about another minute and a half or two minutes. So I really want you to listen to this as I bring it to a close. In the Old Testament, Yahweh was often combined with another name to describe the attributes of God. Each time God wanted Abraham to reach a little bit higher in his faith or whenever whenever his people were about to encounter a really difficult trial, he would usually reveal a new name of his to give them the strength to be able to endure what was coming. We're about to see this in this sermon series. The very same thing happened, but now Yahweh is combined with metaphors rather than names so that every person, listen, you don't need to be steeped in doctrine. You don't need to go through seminary to get the metaphors that Jesus is going to give to us. You don't need to be an intellectual. All you need to do is be able to know what real life is, and every single person will know exactly what every metaphor means. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. Every single metaphor will be immediately accessible by every person. So that we can know him through everyday symbols in our lives. In his I am statements, Jesus not only tells us who he is, but what he can do for us and what we can become through him. Now I'm going to end by taking you back to where I took you in Psalm 115 verse 8. What you worship and bow down to, you will trust. And what you begin to trust, you will soon begin to resemble. The goal of this series, as Jesus shows who he is through common, accessible, everyday metaphors, is that our trust in him would grow. Our love for him and our adoration would increase. That we would bow down and we would worship him. And as we do that, slowly, bit by bit... We're going to become more like Jesus, and he is going to provide everything we need to do everything he's going to ask us to do. Because in Jesus is the great I am. He's the Yahweh, the name above all names. He has everything we could ever need. So we invite you to join us as we embark on a journey of Christ's discovery, beginning next week with Jesus, the I am, the bread of life. It's going to be an amazing journey, and I hope you're with us.
Here's what you learned today. I'm going to just put everything in a nutshell. Jesus is Yahweh. He's the name above all names. He's eternal, unchanging, ever-present, faithful, will do exactly what he has promised so that he can redeem us and bring us out of every trial and put us on sure footing. That's the confidence you can have in your Jesus, the I am, the Yahweh of the Bible. Amen?